Now, in 1997, Tiger Woods, a mere 21, became the youngest golfer ever to win the Masters. He quickly skyrocketed and became the number one golfer in the world, and he was, in the following years, crushing all the records. He was reinventing, really, the sport. Ten years later, 2007, he's making over $120 million a year married to Swedish model Ellen Nordgren, and, and they were expecting their first child. But yet in 2009, late 2009, it all unravels. Reports of infidelity, the crashed Cadillac Escalade, the couple separates, Woods announces he's going to take an indefinite break from golf. And last year he published a memoir of sorts called Tiger Woods, Unprecedented, the masters and me. And in that, he opens up to the reader about his own marriage. And in it, he writes, their mother, Ellen Nordgren, and I were so much in love when we married in 2004, but I betrayed her. My dishonesty and selfishness caused her intense pain. Ellen and I tried to repair the damage I had done, but we couldn't. Well, friends, none of us have been in tiger's shoes, but I think all of us know what it's like to mess up a relationship. Whether it's a childhood friend, whether or not it's a high school teammate, a promising dating relationship in college, we all know what it's like in some way to fail another, to even betray another. And when it comes to marriage, The stakes are even higher. Something that begins with a simple text or just a flirtatious look. And before you know it, years of hard-earned trust are washed away. When it comes to marriage, there is really no shortage of resources offering a way back. Steps that we can employ to help repair what's been broken. For example, I just saw sort of the Couples Institute They offered these five steps. They said, first, explore your partner's disappointment. Ask them, how did you feel when it happened? How did you interpret my actions? Secondly, they say, reflect back on what you've heard. Thirdly, empathize. Quote, acknowledge their suffering. Given what happened, say, I understand why you feel how you, why you would feel what you are in in our, I understand why you would feel what you are, and how you're feeling, if that's helpful. Four, apologize. Say, I never intended to cause those feelings in you. Five, invite further discussion. Those are the five steps. They would suggest is to sort of repair a marriage that's been broken. Friends, maybe those steps would work in marriage. But the question I want to ask is, what happens when we're unfaithful to God? What happens when we're unfaithful to him? Is the way back to God really to say, hey God, I would like to know how you felt? Do we really need to tell God, listen God, I acknowledge your suffering. To say, I never intended to cause those hurt feelings in you. Friends, if that's not the path back to God, then what is? What is the path back to him when we betray him. And friends, that brings us this morning right back to our study in the book of Exodus. I would invite you to turn with me this morning to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32, if you happen to be using one of the red Bibles we provide in the seat back before you, you can find our passage on page 72. Page 72. We're going to be in chapters Exodus 32 through 34. So not seven chapters, just three chapters this morning. Not sure the sermon's going to be any shorter at least the text is shorter. Now, if you're just joining in, we're stepping back a few thousand years in this rather inconsequential nation of Israel has been in Egyptian bondage for hundreds of years. But this tiny nation has one big thing going for it. That's the the creator of all things, the, the king of all things, has taken this tiny nation to be his treasured possession of all the nations on the earth. Now, they weren't the wealthiest, they weren't the prettiest, they weren't the smartest, they weren't the strongest, and yet inexplicably, 
and gloriously he chose them. He set his name upon them. And so he delivers them out of Egypt, right? The Exodus, Exodus, he delivers them out, Exodus 1 through 18. And he delivers them in order to draw near to them, Exodus 19 through 40. Now as we get into Exodus 19 through 40, in those first uh, five chapters, six chapters or so, Exodus 19 through 24, we have the wedding ceremony. We saw how Israel was literally ushered down the aisle to the mountain where God will meet them in chapter 19. And then there's that wedding sermon in chapters 20 through 23. And then the vows and the meal that they share together in chapter 24. And then as you get into Exodus 25 to 31, we see how Moses ascends the mountain. And over the course of 40 days and 40 nights, he's going to be shown how God is going to dwell with his new bride safely and intimately as he gives to Moses the the instructions to build a house so that God can dwell right there in the center in the midst of his own people. And we close Exodus 31 with all the anticipation. We close it with all the promise of a couple that's beginning their new life together. And yet with the bells of the chapel still ringing in the air, the unthinkable happens. In chapter 32, we'll see that God's people, they're unfaithful. They break their vows. They fashion a golden calf. They eat and they drink and they dance before it's saying, chapter 32, verse 4, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Oh, it's a crushing turn of events Right here, already, right now. Now Moses, distraught, he's going to intercede for the people in chapter 32, 11 to 14. He's going to intercede for them again at the end of chapter 32. And as a result of that intercession, that mediation, in chapter 33, God decides not to cut off his people entirely. He actually assures his people the promised land is still going to be theirs. Only one problem we come to find God's not going to go with them. He's not going to go with them. 33, verse 3, we read, God says, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Chapter 33 deals with the loss of God's presence, right? Is there any way for God's people to restore what they have broken, to repair the marriage? Well, Moses is going to intercede again in chapter 33, verses 12 to 23. And in the midst of that, something remarkable happens. God agrees to take back his unfaithful bride. He agrees to live with Israel once again. And so in chapter 34, Moses again is going to ascend the mountain with two new stone tablets. After breaking the first set, two new stone tablets, and there God is going to wed his people again. And we pick up in chapter 34, verse 10. God says, behold, I am making a covenant. 34.10, before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. And then chapter 34, rather, ends with Moses. He's coming down the mountain. He has the tablets newly engraved by the hand of God, and his shining face is a promise that God's favor has, in fact, not left his people. So what we have here is we've got a story of how this new marriage goes from utter ruin to restoration through mediation. That's the movement, this ruin to restoration through mediation. And I want us to examine each of those movements this morning. The adultery in chapter 32 the divorce proceedings in chapter 33, and then inexplicably the remarriage in chapter 34. I think from each of these movements, we're going we're gonna to learn a lesson. And what will we learn about sort of the whole passage? What's sort of the basic message of this whole section? 
how to restore our relationship with this God when we ourselves have been unfaithful to him, I think these three chapters teach at a minimum they teach this. In transgression, God's passion for his reputation is our only consolation. I'm going to just say that again. In transgression, God's passion for his reputation is our only consolation. And we arrive at this first movement, chapter 32. Right, so God has given his word to his people. God has promised his presence to his people. Recall the, the tabernacle from last week. Recall that tabernacle is a picture of Eden being restored. Right, all that God's people had lost, God is restoring it again through the tabernacle. And so 31, chapter, chapter 31, verse 18, that ends on a note that we have not seen since Genesis 2. Israel, God's people, being led by him, governed by him, intimately enjoying the presence of him. Right? Israel's prospects at the end of chapter 31, they have never looked so good. And then we come to chapter 32, verse 1. We pick up the story. Chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered for themselves together to Aaron, gathered themselves together to Aaron, and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, this man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. Friend, at that moment, we need to remember, how did they get all that gold jewelry? This sort of engagement gift as they left Egypt. God had given it to them. These were God's gifts to them. Aaron says, give it to me. Verse 3, so all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears, and they brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with the graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Oh, just stop right there. Do you, do you feel the tragic irony? Do you see it? Right here in the text, while the Lord is literally in the midst of giving the Ten Commandments to Moses there on the mountain. Chapter 31, verse 18, in the very midst of that moment, they are down there at the base of the mountain breaking those very first commandments. They're crafting a golden calf. At the very time Moses is, is giving, God's giving Moses the plans so that he might dwell in their midst, have a palace in his name. Right, especially dwell with his people. In that moment, they are busy worshiping an idol. Friends, that's like committing adultery on your honeymoon. He would wed them only this quickly to have his own people bed another. That's the picture here in chapter 32. Because in Ezekiel, Ezekiel, we're not in Ezekiel, we're in Exodus. In Exodus 34, when God's renewing his marriage vows with his people, he's going to connect this idolatry to a kind of spiritual infidelity. He's going to say in chapter 34, verse 16, to watch out lest they literally whore after other gods. Friends, God couldn't be more graphic and he couldn't be more explicit, which brings us in this first movement to our first lesson. Lesson one, idolatry is spiritual adultery. Lesson one, idolatry is spiritual adultery. This is exactly what Israel is guilty of in Exodus 32, this kind of spiritual adultery. So at the end of, of Exodus 32, verse 6, we read after fashioning the calf, what do the people do? We read that they sat down to eat and to drink, and they rose up to play. Now to be clear, when 
Moses says they rose up to play. That doesn't mean they all gathered together to like a little pickup game of basketball. That's not the kind of play this word has in mind. It's translated in the NIV as, as they indulged in revelry. Or the CSB is as a party. It has overtones of kind of drunken sexual activity. That's what's behind that word play. It highlights how God's people are giving themselves over mind and body to this golden calf. Idolatry as spiritual adultery. Now, when we say idolatry, I think the temptation for many of us is to think, yeah, I, I don't worship carved images. I get a pass on this one. But friend, idolatry, it can be the worship of God simply not as he truly is, but as we imagine him to be. Perhaps by making an image of him, but it doesn't have to be in the form of a shrine or in the, the form of any object. Idolatry is really fundamentally to put anyone or anything in the place of God. It is to set up counterfeit gods in God's place. And they could be shrines or carved images, but they could be what West prayed about. Could be sex, could be money, could be fame, could be reputation, could be approval, could be relationships, could be beauty, could be all of these things. Whatever you look toward as your ultimate source of meaning and existence, whatever you give your energies to, whatever you give your efforts to, whatever consumes your time and your attention, whatever makes you bend and bow to its will, that can become an idol in your own life. Friends, John Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. It's why, more than any other sin, the Bible warns of idolatry. This calf, which has come down to us in English translations as a calf, it probably means more of a bull. It can mean either. But it's probably what the Israelites had in mind. It was a common symbol for deity back in Egypt, which is why Nehemiah is suggesting this is all about Israel's attempt actually to go back to Egypt which just goes to show at this point, yes, the Israelites may have been delivered from Egypt, but Egypt had yet to be fully delivered from them. That house of bondage was not finally outside of them. That house of bondage was deep within their own hearts. And that tabernacle portrayed God in all of his royal splendor, portrayed him as a king, a transcendent king, and yet this image, this golden bull, represented him as a mere beast. Friends, worship, if it is to be true, must be based on a right perception of God. We must know God as he truly is, not merely how we imagine him to be. How often have you heard someone say, you know what, I like to think of God as fill in the blank. Maybe as a father or as loving, or as a friend, or as forgiving, or as accepting, or as inclusive. Rarely do you hear, I like to think of God as a, as a judge, or wrathful, or one who condemns sin, who is exclusive in his love. But you know, J.I. Packer writes in his wonderful book, Knowing God, he says it needs to be said with the greatest possible emphasis, that those who hold themselves free to think of God as they like are breaking the second commandment. At best, they can only think of God in the image of man, as an ideal man, perhaps, or a superman. But God is not any sort of man. We are made in his image, but we must not think of him as existing in ours. To think of God in such terms is to be ignorant of him. It's not to know him. Thus we will find ourselves judged by him. Friends, we must know God as he truly is. As he has revealed himself to be. Not simply as we might imagine him to be. And yet how did Israel find ourselves already in this situation? Committing spiritually adultery with God in the midst of their own honeymoon. Notice verse 1. When the people saw that Moses, what? that he delayed, that he delayed. In Moses' absence, see what's happening. Israel is fearing for her future. 
And in this fear, she rushed for a deliverer. My friend, so often anxiety and fear will press us to bow down to false gods. God often requires us to wait. God rarely, if ever, gives us the itinerary. You know, he calls us rather to trust in his timing. So beware of the sin that either due to fear or either due to anxiety or impatience, that sin that would cause you to, to force the hands of God's clock, to try to adjust those hands yourselves, maybe to push them forward or to try to pull them back, to take that into your own hands, to perhaps demand what you would want and to demand it now. Maybe it's in a relationship you know, forcing something that you know you ought not to force with someone you ought not to force it with. Maybe it's in, it's in the respect you think you deserve. You'll demand it now. Maybe you're younger and you're just like, I'm tired of my parents' authority. I want out and I want it now and I want to have my way. I don't want to wait. Friends, that never ends well. It never ends well when we step out of God's good boundaries and press him as we wait on his timing. Well, what's the result? Moses or God will say to Moses, chapter 32, verse 9, he says, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. You know, that's the first time we come across this image in the Old Testament of Israel as being a stiff-necked people. But this is going to become a common image. Israel is stiff-necked. God's saying their necks are stiff. They're stubborn like a bull. Right? They buck against instruction. Hosea is going to pick up this image. I'll just quote from the CSB, Hosea 4.16. Israel is as obstinate as a stubborn cow. I don't own cows. I can't speak to it. But it's an image of stiff-necked obstinacy. They won't bend. They won't bow. In other words, God's saying, Israel is becoming like the God she worships. She's becoming like the God she worships. Friends, that's true of us. We will resemble what we revere. That will happen to us. If you worship money, your life will be dominated by money and greed. If you worship beauty, your life will be governed by your body. If you worship what people think of you, you will always be held hostage to their opinions of you. It is the way it works. We will become like the gods we worship. And that's not just true of Israel. That's true for you. That's true for me as well. And we see in 32.10 their demise. God says, now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you, referring to Moses. You see what God's doing there. God's saying, I'm going to hit the reset button. It is time to start over. Moses, I'm going to start over just with you. Let's ditch the people, start over just with you. And we really can't blame God, can we? Not here, not now. And yet Moses, he's going to intercede on behalf of Israel. God is going to stay his judgment. And yet as Moses and as Joshua make their way down the mountain to observe this thing that God has described to them, Joshua hears the moans and he thinks there's been some battle and Israel has lost and the reality is a defeat would have been much better than what they're about to witness. 32.19, as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. Right now, Moses' anger is just like God's anger. He threw the tablets out of his hands and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. Friends, we have to grasp, this isn't just any kind of dancing. You know, this isn't a sort of dirty dancing. This is, this is a dancing that would even make Patrick Swayze blush. This was, this was revelry of a different kind that I wouldn't speak to. And what's happened is Moses has just come down the mountain and he has just walked in upon Israel's own unfaithfulness. That's what he's witnessed right here. There they are at the foot of God's mountain, the place where God has wed them. And there are God's people on his front porch and in his front lawn. And they're getting busy with their foreign gods. 
And so what does Moses do? He breaks the tablets there at the foot of the mountain, symbolic of how the people have broken faith with their God. And he confronts Aaron in chapter 32, verse 21 through 24. And notice what Aaron says when Moses confronts him. Chapter 32, verse 22. Aaron says, Moses, you know the people. These people are set on evil. Notice he first tries to blame the Israelites. Hey, Moses, these Israelites, they made me do it. And you know what? When that doesn't work, what does Moses, what does rather uh, Aaron do next? He points to the fire. He says, 32, 24, they gave me gold. I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Moses, it's a miracle. It just happened. And friend, we laugh because we know that's not what happened. We know he fashioned it. End of chapter 32, verse 35, when the Lord sets a plague because they made the calf the one what that Aaron made. There's no doubt what, what Aaron's done. Friend, Aaron is a pathetic reminder of the vain lengths that all of us will go to in order to conceal our sin. But here's the thing, right? All sin will be revealed. Nothing escapes God's notice. Either in this life or in the next life, our sin will be played back before us. We will be witnesses to it. And there is no escape, which means this morning, friend, you can acknowledge it and you can confess it. Proverbs 28, 13, the one who conceals his sin will not prosper. But whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. Friend, I wonder what sins you're hiding this morning. What sin this morning do you need to confess? What sin do you need to confess to God? What sin perhaps do you need to confess to a spouse? What sin perhaps do you need to confess to someone whom you deeply respect and you would be mortified if they were to know what you struggle with? And yet perhaps that's exactly what you need to do and go talk to that person because I promise that will pale in comparison to being mortified before this God on the great day of judgment. The tragic result of all this spiritual adultery, we see its death. Another way in which this is just a mirror of Eden, so in the same way the first sin created death in that first Eden, as we have this new Eden and sin is entered into again in the picture, what do we find? We find death. 3,000 of the guilty will die before the Levites. And the chapter ends with the Lord sending what? A plague. He's sending a plague upon his people, just as he had done to the Egyptians earlier in the book. In other words, Israel has become like Egypt. They have become like the gods they worshipped. And now they are numbered amongst God's enemies. And so by the end of chapter 32, the burning question is what future could there possibly be for this unfaithful people? And that brings us to our second movement, chapter 33. We see that God, he has not utterly destroyed them due to Moses' own intercessions. And yet he seems to divorce them. We pick up the story, chapter 33, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. See what's happening. God's saying, Israel, you get the land. You get the land, but without the Lord. I'm not going with you. God is separating himself from his people. It's like a divorce, but here's the thing. Israel still receives a pretty generous alimony payment. No, she still gets the house, the property, the cars, the possessions, a regular income stream. He's going to give all this to them as he leads them into the promised land as he swore to them. The, vine, the vineyards, the barns, right? The cities, the livestock. He's saying all of this will still be their inheritance. The good life awaits. 
only it won't be with me, he says. See the growing distance for Israel again in, uh, in the tent. So if you flip forward to chapter 33, verses 7 through 11, there we read about the tent of meeting. This, in the absence of a tabernacle, this is where Moses goes to meet with God. But what do we notice immediately about this tent of meeting, verse 7? It's where Moses goes outside the camp, far off from the camp. He's at pains to make clear this tent is nowhere near the people. It is not in the midst of the people as the tabernacle was to be. The tent emphasizes this great separation of the people from God. And here we have just, again, a tragic picture of the consequences of sin. Sin separates. Sin divides. It will necessarily create a distance between you and between the Lord. You cannot have intimate fellowship with God while you are still cherishing your sin. You cannot have it. You can't have fellowship. You can't have communion while you're still feeding those appetites. It's not possible. So this morning, if you've come and if you feel distant from God and you're tempted to put the fault at his feet, stop and think for a moment. Is it possible that that distance has been in some way created due to the sin in your own life? Reflect on that question. Could it be the sin, some unrepentant sin in your own life? Now, of course, this distance means no more tabernacle. Right? If God's not going to dwell with them, there is no reason for the Israelites to build a house for him. But here's my question. As you read those verses, is that such a bad deal? Is it such a bad deal? I mean, reflect, what has Israel lost under this arrangement here with God now in chapter 33? They still have access to him, albeit at a great distance. They still have Moses as their mediator. They still get all the property. They get the land. They get the possessions. Again, in this divorce, alimony is substantial. Is this not precisely what so many want today? They don't want to lose God entirely. They want him around. They just don't want God too close. When it comes to the religious life, the religious life, they would, they would love that the religious life could be handled largely by another, you know, by a professional, by a pastor on their behalf. Let the pastor do the praying. Let the staff do some of the work. We can still have God when we need him. When we need his help, we can talk to a pastor, talk to a counselor. In times of crisis, we know we can still call out to God and he will aid us. You know, and in this way, we can still have our business dealings. We can still have our own family arrangements. Our life's goals, our goals, we can have it all, all we want, and still keep God at a convenient distance. Just close enough to be useful, but not so close as to be intrusive. Friend, could that be you this morning? Is that the arrangement that you have sought with God? One in which he's present when you need him, but not necessarily at the center of your life. Not too close lest he mess with all your plans for your life just far enough so that you can pursue your life and yet still have him too. I think many find this relationship quite attractive. If we're honest with ourselves, we would say so. Would you take this deal? I think many think they in fact have this deal with God. This is the deal they think they've made. The question, friends, is Israel going to take this deal? Look down with me to chapter 33, verse 4. 33, verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your garments that I may know what to do with you. And therefore the people of Israel 
stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Notice the people don't see this deal. They don't see this as desirable. They say it's a disaster. It's a disastrous word, verse 4. They don't celebrate this arrangement. They are left mourning over this arrangement where they can have everything, but they don't have God. And that brings us to our second lesson, friends. Heaven without God might as well be hell. Second lesson. Heaven without God might as well be hell. Now, I know that is a startling statement. But I think many of us would take the good life even if that good life was without God. We would be quite content to have success and fame and family and ease and comfort and reputation, all that we've ever dreamed of. We would be quite content with that even if it meant God remained at a great distance. We'd take that wager. We'd make that deal with him. But the genuine child of God will say, never, not in a million years will I take that wager. I would be destitute without you. Every genuine child of God says the exact opposite. You can take everything. You can take all that I have. Just don't take your presence from me. Don't take that from me. Is that not exactly what beat Job up so badly? You know, what made Job and the book of Job so distraught was not the fact that he lost everything, lost all of his stuff. It's that somewhere along the way, he thought he lost God in the process. That's why the man was so distraught. Heaven without God, friends, that's the devil's deal. For all of Israel's failures, she sees this. Psalm 73, 25. Whom do I have in heaven but you? But you, God. It's why, did you ever ask yourself, why did they strip themselves of all those ornaments? Was God really worried they were going to make another calf? Perhaps. But I think that was a visually powerful way to state by the people. We are willing to shed it all. We are willing to lose all the benefits if it means we can still have you. Friend, can you say that this morning? Is that something you can say? And if not, what does that reveal about what you value in life? What you really want out of this life? What you're looking forward to in the next life? Friends, Moses sees this too. Look down with me, chapter 33, verse 15. 33, verse 15. Moses said to God, If your presence will not go with me, Do not bring us up from here, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses understands at this point, without God, Israel's nothing. They're fundamentally no different than any other nation. And Moses, I think, has gotten to the very heart of it when he speaks of God's people being holy and special. And he recognizes it is not their circumstances that make them holy and special. It is not the events in their lives that have made them fundamentally holy and special. It is not even their obedience that has made them holy and special. It is God's presence in that alone that makes them a holy and special people. It's why when God says to Moses in chapter 33, verse 14, God says to Moses, my presence will go with you. I will give you rest. But what does Moses say? He says, that's not enough. It's not enough that you just go with me. What about, verse 16, your people? Is it not your going, he says, with us, with the people? Which is why Moses says, God, I ask you to show me a sign of your glory. Recognize Moses didn't ask to see God so that he could have his own sort of personal high. He wasn't seeking in that moment his own mountaintop experience. Like, I'm going to have the best morning Devo ever. I'm going to see if God will show himself to me. It's not what Moses is doing. He's asking for God's presence as proof that God, in fact, hadn't forsaken and hadn't abandoned his people because he understood That heaven, the promised land without God, might as well be hell. 
Might as well pack it in now. And the remarkable thing is that God grants it. He grants it. God does the unthinkable. Not what we would expect him to do. Certainly not what we would do. He determines to take this wayward wife. He determines to have her back. And this brings us to our third movement, chapter 34. Brings us to the remarriage. Chapter 34, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. You see what's happening? God is preparing Moses that he's going to embrace his people again. He's going to have his people back again. And notice that God will go with them, and how he will go with them is first seen in how his word will go with them. Friends, this is another necessary reminder for us that we, we experience God's presence fundamentally through his word. We experience his presence through his word. It's how you can sniff out a healthy church from an unhealthy one. It's how you can tell an immature Christian from a mature one. How do they treat this word? Do they look to encounter God apart from his word? Do they look to dreams and visions and other ecstatic experiences? Is that where they go to to encounter God? Or do they look to experience God through his word? That is always the telltale sign. Now by 3410, we've come full circle from where we were in chapter 32, verse 10. So 3210, we were reading about how God's wrath burned hot against them and he was going to consume them. Right? He was going to hit the reset button, just start over. But now by 3410, he's going to wed his people again. It's the remarriage ceremony, 3410 to 27. That language, if you read it, contains much of the same language and echoes and, and repetitions of promises and vows that happened back in chapters 20 through chapter 24, right? That wedding ceremony. In other words, God is beckoning Israel fresh out of the sheets with another lover, and he's calling her back to the altar, back to him. And we'll see not only will God not abandon his people, He'll do, he says, even more awesome things among them, verse 9. Friends, why would God love like this? Nobody loves like this. Nobody would do what God is doing, taking an unfaithful wife on their own honeymoon of all times, loving her, taking her by the hand, right, out of the sheets, back up to the altar to wed her once again. Nobody loves like this. Why does God do it? That brings us to our third lesson. Our only hope is God's character and not our conduct. Our only hope is God's character and not our conduct. Now, where do I get that? The clue is in Moses' prayers for the people. At least four times in these three chapters, Moses prays, he intercedes before God. So if you look back to chapter 32, verses 11 to 13, right after the golden calf incident, how does Moses pray to God? How does he appeal to God? Does he say, look, God, the Israelites, they're really good people on the inside. They just made a little mistake. Cut them some slack. They'll do better next time. Is that what Moses says? Does he say, listen, I know they'll never do it again. They won't be unfaithful again like this. Does he say, listen, they're going to come back with even more sacrifices, more bulls and more goats. They'll earn their way back to you. Is that how Moses appeals to God? You know, just be patient. The people will make it up. No. Moses says nothing about Israel at all. He completely ignores Israel. Instead, what does Moses appeal to in that intercession Chapter 32, verse 11 and 14, he appeals to Israel as God's possession. God's possession. He says they're your people. Your people. He appeals to God's reputation. 32, 12. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent, did he, God, bring them out to kill them? Right? Moses' concern there is not Israel's reputation. They've, they've wasted that. Moses' concern is God's reputation. And then Moses appeals to God's revelation, right? To the promises and the commitments that he's made. 
32, 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self. He's appealing back to Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, God's everlasting covenant. Notice, not once does Moses ever ground a single appeal in the people of Israel. Rather than defending the people before the Lord, Moses is defending the Lord before the Lord. That's where he goes. He grounds his prayers in the Lord's concern to make himself be known, that the Lord to be seen is gracious and faithful to his word. Because, friends, Moses gets it. Our track records will never be good enough. They won't be good enough. Our performance will never match up enough. It's why if we're going to have any hope when it comes back to God, if you're to have any hope this morning, it will be in God's character, never in your conduct. But I think the most pressing issue is not that God amazingly and inexplicably is going to do all this, that he will take us back as wayward and unfaithful as we are. I think the question is, how in the world is God going to do this? How is he going to do this? How can a holy and righteous God dwell with such a sinful and rebellious people? How can he be both so compassionate and yet so just? And this is exactly what Exodus 34, 6 to 7 is all about. Look there, Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. For when God promises that he's going to wed his people again, notice how he reveals himself to Moses. One of the most thorough revelations of God's character in the Bible. Verses that will be picked up again and again. Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Just stop right there. Do you feel that tension? How can this gracious God forgive iniquity and yet by no means clear the guilty? How can both of those things be true? Theologically, these verses lie right at the center of Exodus 32 to 34. But I think even more fundamentally than that, these verses represent the very riddle of the Old Testament. The riddle of the Old Testament. And Exodus doesn't exactly answer this riddle. But Exodus does give us a hint. You know, in Moses' third intercession, Exodus 33, verse 20, Moses says to Israel, he says, perhaps I, I can make atonement for your sin. And so Moses approaches God with these words in 32, 31. Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin... But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. You notice what's happening there in that that third, that third intercession? Moses wants to stand in their place. Moses is appealing to be their substitute. Judge me, blot me out of your book, not them. But of Moses' four intercessions, this is the only one that God does not grant. It seems Moses is not up to the task. It seems Moses isn't qualified. Because the guilty can't stand in the place of the guilty. Friend, that's why another would have to come. And in the fullness of time, friend, another would come. And this one would be the image of of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And for while no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made this one known. And before this one, friends, we didn't have to hide our faces. This one was truly qualified. The one who lived, 
the perfect life that Israel and every one of us in this room has failed to live. One who was spotless, spotless, one who was without blemish, one who was that perfect sacrifice, that paschal lamb, the one who died in our place. He alone was the perfectly innocent one that was qualified to stand in the place of the guilty. From the riddle of the Old Testament is answered for us in Jesus. How God could be both compassionate and gracious and yet also judge the wicked. On the cross, that's where the riddle is solved because it's there where all of us in our own guilt, as we look to him, as we repent of our sins, we place our faith upon him. As we do that, God overlooks our guilt. He sees it as transferred upon his only son and the righteousness that we don't have, that Christ has earned in his perfect life, that becomes ours. And in every way, Christ was qualified to be a suitable, to be a compassionate, to be an all-sufficient Savior for any who would turn and any who would trust in him. Right? Rising from the grave, he proved to God that he was the final sacrifice for sin. Friends, that's the gospel according to Exodus. We already see it right here in these chapters. Ruin to restoration through mediation. A perfect mediator. Not Moses, but Christ himself. Friend, if you've come this morning, I hope you also see you need a mediator. Because all of us. Yeah, okay, you may think, I haven't committed adultery. Fair enough. But if not physically, then spiritually in your own hearts, you certainly have. We know all too well, if we know our hearts, the inclination of them. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. You know that experience? So when things go sideways between you and God, when you are unfaithful to him, I hope you see that, that empathizing, that simply apologizing, that inviting God into a dialogue about how he felt when you sinned against him. Friends, those things are woefully inadequate. They won't do. A human mediator won't do. Friend, for all of Moses' strengths, all of his virtues, there were some things beyond Moses, some things beyond any mere man or woman, some things only Jesus can do for us. God doesn't call you to try harder. He calls you to trust in his mediator. Friend, have you? Have you trusted in him? Let's pray. Oh God, we give you praise for your word. It hits us upside the head sometimes. It reminds us of who we are. It reminds us of all the ways in which we chase after other gods. As much as we don't like to admit it, we have to also confess that it's true. God, humble us. Help us see ourselves and the story of the Israelites. Remind us of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, that this was written down as an example for us, that we wouldn't follow in the same path. Oh God, build us in holiness, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.